I'm here with Ashley Walsh, lecturer in early modern history at Cardiff University. And we're going to discuss his new book, Civil Religion and the Enlightenment in England, 1707 to 1800, published in February 2020 by Boydell and Brewer with the Studies in Modern British Religious History series. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Katie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your new book, which looks brilliant. Um, I suppose just start from the top. Can you tell us what led you to write this book? Well, thank you very much for that introduction and for your comment about the book. Um, well, I think if you'll permit me the politician's answer, I think first I should just briefly say what civil religion is, mm. um, because I think often to the, you know, to a mind um, that belongs to the modern secular liberal world and a civil religion might seem like an oxymoron, the idea of a public religion administered and regulated by the state, or mm. as people in the 18th century put it, a simple profession of public faith that also allowed freedom of thought and conscience. Um, so I suppose it was that oxymoron, that, that contra seeming contradiction of a civil religion, a state faith, that drove me to write the book. Um, historians, intellectual historians especially, associate civil religion with anti-Christian political thinking, or at least non-Christian political thinking, and they associate it especially in the canon of the history of political thought with Niccolò Machiavelli, Thomas Hobbes, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all of whom, it's generally argued, devised of a state religion that was specifically not Christian. Um, and they criticised Christians for being otherworldly, too obsessed about the metaphysics of the world to come and the promises of punishment and rewards in heaven and hell than with the daily politics of political life in this world. Um, and I suppose what also led me to write the book was how there is an ongoing debate among Enlightenment scholars about how England might or might not fit into a European conception of Enlightenment and of course, you know, there was a civil religion in the French Revolution, a, a supreme cult, uh, a cult of the supreme being that we associate with Robespierre, and the streets of 18th century London never thronged with these deists and these supreme being believers. But I don't think that means that there wasn't enlightenment in England. And there was a long debate, as hopefully the book shows, from the time of the English civil wars the time of Thomas Hobbes and the Republican thinker James Harrington, to the age of Roman Catholic emancipation in the 1830s, a long debate about the proper contribution of Christianity to the peace of the state and the welfare of society. And I think that we can call that a debate about civil religion in a way that Enlightenment scholars would recognise. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to uh, agree with that. I think What's really interesting about the way you set up the book is that that long view, which links it into the Reformation proceeding and, and framing it in the context of the notion of, of the long Reformation instead of that distinct secular enlightenment narrative that so often dominates the discussion. Um, and also the challenge you're setting up to that sort of traditional association of civil religion with the kind of Machiavelli Rousseau narrative. Um, where did that come from? Was that part of your sort of, did that emanate from your PhD, 
uh, well obviously it emanated from your PhD studies but what led you to really focus in on this particular kind of discrepancy within 18th century history? Well in part I have a debt to my own supervisor Mark Goldie who showed that the, the, the Republican thinker James Harrington developed a very sophisticated vision of civil religion in the age of the English civil wars um, and it's you know it's well known among intellectual historians especially Richard Tuck and your own supervisor Justin Champion as other good examples mm. of how civil religion has a debt to republican political thinking um, but actually as I as I read Rousseau's social contract I found that Rousseau was name-checking English political thinkers specifically to Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan the subtitle of which is called The Matter and Form of a Commonwealth Ecclesiastical and Civil. And another now little known English thinker, Bishop William Warburton, the Bishop of Gloucester, who, though little known now, was notorious in his day for his controversial literary style. And French revolutionaries who were inspired by Rousseau to develop a deistical civil religion, a cult of the supreme being, like mm -hmm. Nicolas Bonville, also referenced these English political thinkers. And it was that pro problematic, you know, lots of Enlightenment scholarship puts England to one side or on the periphery of a European conception of Enlightenment. But actually these, these, these thinkers at the heart of a Gallo-centric Enlightenment were looking at the English over this long period. And that, you know, that drove me to start exploring the problem a little further. Yeah, and finding that actually the English conception was much more sort of Christian oriented than perhaps the, the latter French um, manifestations of civil religion. Yeah, I found that all of these people, all of these thinkers who we associate with irreligion or scepticism or even atheism were writing long histories of the Protestant Reformation. Mm. They were writing histories about the papal supremacy over the temporal power in the Middle Ages. They were looking back to the Anglo-Saxon church as an example of a king who's not willing to be pushed around by the papacy in matters temporal, for instance. And yeah. So, you go on, yeah. No, no, I, I was just agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're, all, they're, they're using the language of primonire, the crime of, uh, of not recognizing the sovereignty of the civil power. Um, J, the great historian J.J. Pocock, Pocock once wrote that the central problematic of English political thought for 300 years originated in the Henrician Reformation over the definition of sovereignty, the claim that England is an empire into, over which no foreign body, including and especially the papacy, could claim supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I think that showed that civil religion, in, at least in the English sense, rather than being a reaction to Christianity, grew precisely out of it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Pocock because he obviously a huge monolith. Is monolith the right word? But um, and I was thinking looking at the, the structure of your book how much that kind of long narrative overview parallels in terms of how you conceive of civil religion parallels a lot of what Pocock did with say republicanism. Um, and how far, I suppose, that kind of Pocock structure influenced you, if at all? Oh, I think so. It's always, I'm sure, any, any former PhD student will recognise this sentiment when you spend three or four years 
pouring through books, going through every possible source. Mm. And then you read an essay by a great scholar like Pocock, as I did, and found that Pocock wrote in one of his important essays on the English Enlightenment, that we could understand the process of enlightenment in England as the unfolding of a civil religion, which recognized <laughs> the king as supreme and as sacred insofar as he guaranteed the freedom of conscience of every English subject. And you know, you read those and you think, oh damn, it took me three years. And Pocock <laughs> um, but I, I think Pocock was certainly one of the main scholars that um, set up um, how I approached the problem of civil religion. Though I think Pocock's conception of English enlightenment as <clears throat> conservative and clerical can have its limits. Scholarship, particularly associated with Brian Young in Oxford, has moved the debate on slightly to show how we can understand enlightenment in England as having lay and liberal orientations too. So um, it, moves on from, it, mo it moves on from the Pocock monolith too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose just on that, following on from that, could you give a, a little description of how you structured the book, how the, how the narrative of the book flows forward in a sense of the, I mean, the sources that you use, it's a brilliant range. So maybe just do some name dropping there. <laughs> um, well, the book is a series of case studies um, and the introduction, which is longer than you might sometimes expect an introduction to be tries to gather those case studies together to sketch out a broad image of civil religion in 18th century England. Um, and so I sketch out those themes to show how English civil religion and enlightenment had debts to the Long Reformation or the process that historians now know as the Long Reformation. I then present a series of case studies examining the different varieties of civil religion in 18th century England. I include enlightenment philosophers like the Third Earl of Shaftesbury and David Hume, who, though a Scot, wrote an extensive and very famous history of England. Mm -hmm. The great historian Edward Gibbon, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I include Anglican churchmen like Warburton and various Protestant dissenters, including Joseph Priestley and Richard Price. And in the conclusion, I try and, tra I try and take my argument forward into the 19th century, showing how 18th century conceptions of civil religion influenced the writings of Samuel Taylor Coleridge in the age of Catholic emancipation, and after that, the broad church movement. And I also show how the English debate, running from Hobbes and Harrington to the age of Catholic emancipation, shaped some of the debate in the French Revolution by showing the reception of some of these thinkers. So that's a broad outline, I think, of the structure of the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was just thinking of something I was going to say then, which was going to be really interesting. <laughs> I've forgotten it. <laughs> no, I know. Um, the, what I, one of the aspects I found really interesting, certainly during your discussion in the introduction, and also which is reflected in some of the choices of, of sources, so particularly the Third Earl of Shaftesbury, is trying to get a grip of the sense of what civil and civility meant to your, mm -hmm. and I, I keep this written down, because the English civil religionists, you're both, with that group of, of people you've just identified, that's the sort of collective term you, you use for them, which I like, that they are an identifiable group in some way. But um, yeah, it's this, this ongoing question because civil, certainly in the way that you use it, is not a sense of, of civic, 
per se. It's mm. you're very much emphasizing that there is a an sort of like I say a, a civility that is central to the identity of these English civil religionists. Yeah, I think you know, the, the the caricature that intellectual historians can get stuck in minor changes of definition and word applies <laughs> here. Uh, the, dif <laughs> the difference between the civic and the civil is very important. Um, as, as your own work with John Toland shows, mm. we, should, we ought really to understand civic in a more republican sense in the as an understanding of the way in which religion encouraged civic virtue, good mm. citizenship, which prioritized service to the common good, the public good, over the private interest. Mm -hmm. And that has a long history in Republican political thinking that stretches back to, uh, to Cicero and to the Roman Republic. But I chose, as, as you're right to observe the word civil instead, I think for two reasons. One, I want to refer to the civil state. Um, that's to say, uh, prioritizing the loyalty of the subject or the citizen to the secular state over, for instance, the claims of the Bishop of Rome or the Popish claims of the Church of England as civil religionists saw it, that priests had a higher authority, that of God through apostolic succession over the state. So I think that's the first sense in which we can use the word civil. I think the second is in terms of civility or mm. civilization. A big theme of recent scholarship and that's been most recently explained by Robert Ingram, has, has, has been to show that England in the 18th century was really a post-revolutionary society in which intellectuals, politicians and historians and churchmen agonized over the causes of the wars of religion of the mid 17th century, the cause of the bloody, the bloody revolution that we associate as being the glorious revolution. <laughs> And the ways in which because, you know, it might look glorious to an Englishman, but to a Scot or an Irishman, it looks slightly less glorious and peaceful. Mm. Um, you know, these are all wars of religion in a very important sense. And there's a, there's a, it's essential to conceive of 18th century English society as one in which people try to make religion safe for the civil state and safe for civil society by civilizing it, prioritizing politeness and toleration freedom of conscience, while at the same time trying to create social harmony through a very simple, stripped down public profession of faith. All of these thinkers like Hume and Gibbon that we associate for, with Enlightenment irreligion argued that it was possible to create a peaceful public religion based upon the gospel message of Jesus Christ alone. Mm. I think it's a really important perspective to put forward. Um, and which you do extremely well in the book is to just show the, the shift in sense there of what civility and civil religion really meant to these thinkers and the big social change as well as an intellectual change that was intended to come alongside it. Um, I think, well, if you, we've discussed the book. I think you've given a good sense um, of the, the main arguments and, and really the, the big significance of, of those arguments. I don't know if you want to add any more about what you see the book contributing or what you hope the book will achieve in terms of changing the discussion about civil religion and the Enlightenment in England. Yeah, well, I think, firstly, hopefully, much like your recent book too, I, hopefully <clears throat> I show what a civil religion is 
Mm. Um, because I think, just, again, to the liberal secular mind, it can seem like a contradiction or an oxymoron. Um, but I think I also want to show how the Enlightenment concerned itself less with the eradication of religion, but while, rather with its public regulation. Mm. I think one of the reasons that the English Enlightenment has been sidelined, put onto the periphery, is that historians are attracted by a gallocentric interpretation of enlightenment that prioritizes the irreligious project of the philosoph of Voltaire and Diderot and d'Alembert mm. and the radical anti-Christianity of the French Revolution. And also I think there's been a move outside of the historical discipline in political theory and social theory, a post-secular move to show how the enlightenment didn't necessarily aim towards the privatization of religion or the removal of religion from society. So hopefully I'll, the book contributes to showing how that was the case. Um, and I think also particularly with thinkers that we associate with high irreligion and skepticism like Edward Gibbon or David Hume or Henry St. John, the Viscount Bolingbroke, a name that people might, are almost certainly less familiar with, is, is, is in showing the, the distinction they drew between what we, we call in the trade esoteric and exoteric philosophy. <laughs> um, as you do with John Talmond in your own book, um, mm. it's possible for a civil religion to have a deistical or an anti-Christian mood as Toland does, but also it can be made Christian at the same time. Uh, the great French writer Tocqueville in the 19th century noticed that Hume like a politician, respected the established faith, however ridiculous he thought Christian belief to have been. And Gibbon and Hume both recalled that the French philosoph ridiculed their respect for the established faith. Bolingbroke, a great uh, skeptic or, or deist, also respected the bishops. And I think that's a really powerful theme that historians should hold on to, the distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric, freedom of inward conscience, but respect for the public faith as a means of generating uh, religious, uh, religious harmony and, and, you know, really, and, and community harmony too. And I think that's the final big thing that hopefully I want to feed into, that we associate the development of religious toleration with the process of secularization. Mm. But actually I think this book and your work and work around it also shows that religious toleration in the 18th century in England at least occurred under the aegis of the Protestant state, of the evangelical state, under the godly prince. And it didn't necessarily have to turn upon the removal of religion from public, from public society or from the civil state. Yeah, well, unsurprisingly, I, I agree with that, and particularly the, the need to recognise that even if esoteric and exoteric existed as distinct categories, they were not necessarily mutually exclusive and that the need to kind of separate secularization and, and Christianity is, is, doesn't reflect the reality of the 18th century and, and the world that, that these people were living in, in which questioning faith did not necessarily mean rejecting faith. Yeah, exactly. And as again, as your work shows, these thinkers look back to Cicero as the example of a philosophical skeptic, an elite, mm. who, however much he might have disagreed with the popular superstition, read the public faith, observed it because it was an essential part of being 
you know, an, an elite of holding society together, of governing well, you have to respect the beliefs of the, of, of the public belief and the faith of the masses. Yeah. Well, I, it's a really exciting um, new study and I think you've conveyed really well everything that we should be getting from the book. Um, I do just want to finish with a question which is probably quite unfair to someone who's just published a book, but what are you working on next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the moment, I can't get into my office because of the COVID-19. Oh, yeah, that that small matter, yeah. So at the moment, I'm currently trying to avoid laughing as I record lectures on my own in a room. But my, my (laughs) my next major project is on the phenomenon of enlightened Anglophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, my ne- the, the, the next major project will hopefully be on how, uh, across the European Enlightenment, England was taken as a model uh, in political theory, in moral philosophy, and in political economy, um, if not to imitate or to follow, but to study. Um, and so the central problem of how England can be integrated into a European conception of enlightenment will, will, be, the, will be the continuing problem that I want to keep trying to solve. Sounds very exciting Um, and not at all (laughs) small fry. (laughs) Um, Ambitious plans. Give me some time, yeah. (laughs) yeah. No, I want to see it tomorrow. Um, That sounds brilliant and we wish you all the best with it and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much. It's just nice to talk to another human being, if nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Even via these magic zoom conversations yes i agree (laughs) all right thank you ashley thank you katie